Welcome to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. And today's podcast topic will be centered around the impact of the automobile. Today we have a special guest, and this podcast is a recorded interview between Jean Ann and Matt Anderson, the curator of transportation at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Without any further ado, I will turn it over to the two of them and their conversation. Good morning, Matt. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, my name is Matt Anderson. I'm the curator of transportation at the Henry Ford in Dearborn, Michigan. So I work with the cars, the trains, and the planes. I help to develop those collections, kind of decide new things to bring into the museum. I, I help shape the exhibits. I also write a lot of labels for some of those things as they go on display. So a, a little bit of everything, a lot of research too about what we have and what we might like to add to the collection to uh, to keep it going. That's great. You know. Um... I'm so interested about what we're going to discuss today, and I think that, you know, the invention of the automobile, there are few inventions that have changed the course of history and impacted life more than the automobile has. Yeah, I, I think that's a fair point. As we like to say at the museum, it's, it's really a part of all of our lives. Even people who consciously don't drive, you know, they, they walk, they ride bikes, whatever, they're still impacted by the automobile and, and the policy decisions that are made across the country to accommodate cars and just the, the general environment as we talk about things like, like climate change and so forth. A lot of that is associated with automobiles. So you're right. It's really pervasive in American life. You know, the invention of the automobile, a lot of people think that Henry Ford created the automobile. Now, there were other people who had a hand in, in creating this invention. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the people who are credited with inventing the first cars and just the invention of the automobile itself? Yeah, the, the automobile is one of those those funny things. It's, it's such a complex creation that it, you really can't pinpoint one person or, or one place or one point in time where it kind of came into being. It's one of those things that evolved over many years. In fact, there were experiments with self-propelled steam carriages even in the, the 1700s. Uh, the oldest vehicle we have in our collection is from 1865, the oldest self-propelled automobile, I should say. It's a steam carriage built by a fellow named Sylvester Roper in Massachusetts. And uh, you know, this is right at the end of the Civil War. Nobody's thinking about cars the way we think of them today. He built this as, as kind of a circus attraction, right? You pay five cents to go watch this thing move on its own on land. Certainly at that point, people had seen steam locomotives, they'd seen steam boats, but to see a vehicle moving with no track over the ground must have been pretty, uh, pretty exciting. But again, Roper wasn't thinking about production or putting these cars in the hands of, of everyday drivers. So, you know, it doesn't really count as a car. Most historians would point to Carl Benz and uh, his patent wagon, which he built in 1885 as being the first self-propelled land vehicle designed around the internal combustion engine. And uh, the Benz patent wagon was just a little three-wheeled vehicle. It was a single cylinder engine, uh, less than a horsepower and uh, top speed in, in later modified versions, still no better than 10 miles an hour, but yeah. still it, it, it kind of counts. And that's where most people would say the car as we know it today started. Is it true that Carl Benz's wife um, paid for or like financed his work? She was his greatest supporter. Yes, yes. She helped uh, raise some of the money to produce Benz's car and maybe her, her most important contribution. You know, a lot of people were questioning the reliability, the, the value of Benz's vehicle. 
Bertha Benz uh, traveled 66 miles cross country in Germany where the Benzes were from and where this work was being done uh, to sort of prove that the car could make the trip. And, uh, you know, 66 miles doesn't seem like much to us today, but this was a, an all day dawn to dusk kind of odyssey at that time with a vehicle that would go that speed. And she had some issues along the way. She had to clean out a fuel line with her hat pin. She had to stop at a blacksmith to, to build some brake shoes uh, out of leather as opposed to just wood blocks, but she made it. So that was a, a real kind of proving point for the Benz patent wagon for the, the legitimacy or the legitimacy, we'll put it that way, of uh, self-propelled vehicles. I'm sure. I'm sure it took a lot of convincing. I mean, if you think of things like the, the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, they, they walked elephants across it to make people feel comfortable that, you know, it could withstand the weight that, you know, this is a safe thing. I would imagine for people to trust that an automobile could take them safely, they would have to do the same thing. Yeah, anytime we see a new invention like that, there's always some skepticism about it. And you're right, we see it time and again with uh, you know railroads, then with uh, automobiles, then with airplanes. And you know we see it today. I'm thinking about some of the people who are sending rockets into space, right? And we get a little nervous about buying a ticket to travel on one of those space planes when they come to being. So it's the same story repeated over and over again. For Henry Ford, you know, and his involvement in making the automobile what it has become today, right? His early life, he's born in, you know, he's born in Dearborn, Michigan. And I was reading that as a child, you know, he was always kind of mechanical. He was taking apart watches and putting them back together. What is it about his life that gets him on the road to inventing, you know, what he invents, the Model T? Yeah, there, there are a few things that, that kind of show themselves very early in Henry Ford's life. You're right, he was born on, on a farm here in Dearborn, just about 10 miles west of Detroit. And we have to keep in mind, in 1863, when he was born into the 1870s, 10 miles might have been a world away, right? Because it was, it was a long distance to travel by those standards. And people didn't travel the way that they do today. The idea of a suburb like that didn't really exist. So it was a rural environment. And Ford very early on learned that he hated farm work. The, the actual physical labor involved in farming. So that became a recurring theme throughout his life. He also didn't like that isolation, feeling that you were so far removed from the big city or even from your neighbors in some cases. But yes, he also proved himself to be really adept with mechanical things early on. And yes, as a boy of a 10 years old, he would you know, take apart watches and then reassemble them, make them run again. He got kind of a reputation for this among friends and neighbors who would give watches to him to work on, to repair. So those were the first kind of machines that, that caught his fancy. And he also proved himself at a young age to be a good organizer, right? He could uh, inspire other people to buy into his vision, whatever that vision might have been as a boy, but get them to kind of follow along and help Henry do his work. And this is something that will obviously pay off in a big way later on with Ford Motor Company, where he's able to attract talented individuals to his company who then buy into Henry Ford's dream and work to help him fulfill it. You know, for Henry Ford, how does he begin designing cars? Ford's first foray into the world of automobiles comes in uh, 1893. In fact, on Christmas Eve, he, uh, he builds a one-cylinder engine uh, just out of scrap metal, basically pipes, bits of tubing that he finds as his job where he's working at the Detroit Edison Company, which was like the, the power and gas or the electric company at that time. And uh, he brings this little engine out into the kitchen. It's called the kitchen sink engine for this reason. And uh, his wife, Clara, to whom we also have to give a great deal of credit for her patience and her support of her husband over the years. She uh, mm -hmm. let Henry hook this up as she's trying to prepare the holiday meal for the family. <laughs> 
He uh, <laughs> plugs the, the spark plug into an overhead uh, lamp, uh, fires it up, and, and sure enough, the thing runs. It, it's noisy. It's certainly not perfect, but he runs it for about 30 seconds, a minute, shuts it down. That's all he needed to do, just to prove that he could build a working internal combustion gasoline-fueled engine. So from that, he then goes on to building his first automobile, the Quadricycle, which he finishes in June of 1896. And this, again, a little four-wheeled vehicle, uh, literally bicycle tires on it, uh, a horse buggy seat for the seat for the driver. Uh, it's steered by a tiller, not a steering wheel, a little two-cylinder uh, engine on the back. Uh, does maybe 15 miles an hour, but Ford takes it out early in the morning so he can avoid all the horse-drawn traffic and the bicyclers and the pedestrians, right, and test it. And, and sure enough, the thing works. So the quadricycle is his first step toward forming an automobile. He will establish two automobile companies that both fail before he finally achieves success with Ford Motor Company, which is founded in 1903. You know, one of the things that really kind of piqued my interest is, you know, the Model T is not the first prototype. There's the Model A, kind of went down the list of the alphabet. You know, so think about all of those prototypes until he got to the Model T. What was it about the Model T that made it such a success, do you think? Yeah, Ford's, uh, the, the model names, model names, as we know, they didn't really exist in, in those days. So Ford logically started with Model A as his very first car and worked yeah. way through B, C, and various others. I mean, he didn't build a car for every letter in the alphabet, but uh, by the time he got to T, that's when he hit the sweet spot. And that's what Ford was always kind of imagining. He wanted to build a quality car, a well-built car uh, that could be affordable, right? So anyone making a good wage could buy it. Prior to that, Automobiles were thought of as playthings for the wealthy. Only rich people could afford to drive cars. And, you know, everyday folks thought that you know, there's no point in these things because they can't afford them anyway. They'll never be practical. Uh, Ford realized there was a, a theoretically infinite market, right, of every, every man and woman in the United States if you could build a car that was affordable enough for them. So the, the Model T hit that sweet spot. I, I like to say that prior to its introduction, you could get two kinds of cars, right? You could get a good car, which is to say a really well-built quality automobile, or you could get a cheap car, but those cheap cars inevitably were very poorly built and it would sometimes fall apart, literally as you're driving down the street. But the Model T was the first good, cheap car. And that's what changed the automobile from uh, a recreational device, a toy, frankly, into a tool of everyday life. Yeah, I mean, and Henry Ford is also credited with, you know, changing the way that cars were produced. You know, you mentioned his, you know, earlier forays in, in car dealerships, I guess, or car companies, but he used the Dodge Brothers Manufacturing Company, and they provided, you know, the majority of parts for his cars instead of using a number of different suppliers, which has, you know, kind of caused some of the problems he ran into the first time he couldn't get certain parts, there were delays. And it was a visit to a slaughterhouse, right, that gave Henry Ford the idea for the assembly line. That, that is right. And uh, just as Henry Ford didn't invent the automobile, he, he didn't invent the moving assembly line either. Instead, he kind of took it, refined it, uh, grew it to a point that no one else had ever really conceived or achieved before. And you're right. One of the primary sources of inspiration for Ford were uh, meatpacking houses, what we might call disassembly lines, where... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Animal carcasses go in one end, right? And workers kind of remove different parts of the animal as it's moved along on this conveyor belt until it's all moves out of the plant at the other end, packed up in tins to go off to the, the butcher or the grocery store, or whatever it might be. And Ford thought, you know, what if we reverse that and it became an additive process? So rather than having a team of 10 or 12 people build a car essentially from the ground up, 
what if we bring the work to the workers? And uh, as it comes along, you know, one person just adds one nut, they add one bolt, they tighten one thing, whatever it might be. So he's accomplishing several things at once. He's controlling the rate at which the vehicles are built by putting them on this moving line. He's uh, eliminating really much of the need for skilled labor. You, you don't necessarily have to have a lot of experience or skill or technical ability to do just one small part of, of the automobile's construction. And in doing so too, he's also speeding up the process of which it, it, or the time it takes to build a car. You know, Prior to the moving assembly line, it could take up to 12 and a half, 13 hours for one team to build a complete car. Car, uh, with the moving assembly line very early on, that time is cut down to an hour and a half between the time that the, the car starts on one end to the, the finished car at the end. Yeah, so just tremendous gains in productivity. Wow. You know, one of the things that I also found very interesting in preparing for today was, you know, I was surprised to find out that the automobile industry was, you know, rather incestuous. Like all of these companies are involved with each other and they're kind of branching off. And when you discuss you know, the history of the automobile, it's impossible not to talk about what they call like the big three, right? You have GM, you have Ford, you have Chrysler and executives within these main companies, they would go on to start other ones, you know, um, like Walter Chrysler, you know, who worked for both Buick and GM before he started the Chrysler Corporation. And before the big three, you have companies like Studebaker, who before they got into the car game, they were producing things like wagons and buggies. Um, you know, can you talk a little bit about that, how, you know, they were all kind of intertwined with each other? Yeah, that, that's a great point. And, uh, you know, it's like we see today in, in the tech sector, you know, I have a lot of people who will start at one company, you know, maybe Google, and then they go on to Facebook or whatever it might be. Same thing was happening in the automobile industry at the beginning of the 20th century. It was the equivalent of the high-tech industry at that time. It's what everybody wanted to get into, everybody with, with ambition and, and drive. And you're right, a lot of people worked in these different firms. Uh, you bring up Studebaker, which is a great example. That is a company that started building carriages started in 1852, long before anybody was thinking about cars. And they are surprisingly maybe the, the only carriage maker that really made a successful transition into the production of automobiles on a large scale. You know, it seems natural that carriage companies would just say, well, let's put engines in, in our carriages and, and go into the car business. And certainly many of them tried, but Studebaker was the only one that succeeded. And Partly that was because they were the largest builder of carriage companies. So they had the money, the resources to experiment and, and frankly, to fail with a couple of models before they could finally achieve success. Um, another person who got a start in, in the carriage industry is Billy Durant, who uh, created a carriage industry in Flint, Michigan, not too far from Detroit. And then he saw that cars were the coming thing, wanted to get into that business. And uh, he is the one that eventually organized General Motors. And in fact, he was in charge of General Motors a couple of different times. But Durant's kind of an interesting person. He was more interested in the business, I think, than he was in the car. So he just kept building and building General Motors into uh, one of the largest corporations in the world, which it is today, which was fine when the business was up and growing, but got to be a difficulty when economic trouble set in in the early 1920s. So that's a story in and of itself. And you mentioned Walter Chrysler, too, who had kind of a reputation as a, a problem solver or a troubleshooter on the business side of things. There were a couple of times he came in to help automobile companies, which were on the verge of bankruptcy and kind of turned them around. And the Chrysler Corporation grew out of one of those efforts to uh, sort of re re 
reconfigure, reshape the Willis Company in, in Toledo before it fell apart. That evolved into Chrysler, which is now a part of Stellantis. And you're right, those are the Detroit Three, uh, General Motors, Ford, and, and Chrysler that uh, dominated much of American manufacturing for most of the, the 20th century. And when those companies were founded, especially Chrysler, when they come on the scene in the mid-1920s as the last of the big three, that kind of represents the point where the American auto industry uh, reaches a level of maturity, right, and becomes a, a legitimate lasting enterprise in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure you can check my numbers on this. I mean, I'm by no means an expert, but, you know, the Model T, you know, my understanding is that it could go from like 30, 35 miles an hour tops, right? And then yeah, you have yeah, that's, Walter that's right. Chrysler, who his dream, he wanted to get to 70, right? 70 miles an hour. I mean, imagine that. I mean, I could do that on the highway, no problem, without even thinking about it, right? But imagine like that was the dream. That was the goal. How do we get a car to be able to reach such a speed. Yeah, there was a kind of a magical significance almost attached to 60 miles an hour because that was a mile a minute, right? Which seemed like an easy number to comprehend. And uh, amazingly, Henry Ford built a race car in 1901, which could go 70 miles an hour, not a little faster, but uh, it, it would be a few years before those kinds of speeds uh, became achievable in everyday cars. And, and the first part, there really wasn't much point in going that fast because there were a few places in the United States where you could drive that fast safely. Roads were, were yeah. almost non-existent. When they were there, they were in terrible condition, muddy in, in wet weather and, and hot and dusty and bumpy in, in good weather. So you had to wait for pavement and improved roads to really come about in the late teens and the early 1920s. But yes, by the early 20s, people start to want a little more from their cars, more speed, more comfort, more options. They start to move toward closed cars rather than touring cars, what we might call convertibles today, where there's really not much body work apart from some doors and, uh, and a hood. So uh, yes, that's a part of, I think, the growing maturity. And that's also part of the problem that uh, hits the Model T, right? The Model T is the best-selling car in the world. In the early 20s, are selling 2 billion of those cars a year, but the Model T never really had any major mechanical changes in its design or its construction between when it was introduced in 1908, right on up to the end in 1927. So it was absolutely cutting edge in 1908, but it's a bit of a dinosaur by the mid-1920s. So Ford is forced to eventually cancel the Model T and replace it with a new car, the Model A, kind of rebooting his company, right? Going back to yeah. that original model number. When it came time to sell cars, anybody who wanted to build and sell a, you know, a four-wheeled combustion engine couldn't do so without the consent of one man, George Selden. And this, you know, I think if you don't know it, about it is it's very interesting. Very interesting. You know, this man he sees a combustion engine at the Centennial Exposition in Philadelphia in 1876, and he designs. He never builds it. He just designs a smaller engine and he creates a patent for it. And he's constantly kind of adding to this patent. Can you talk a little bit about how George Selden impacted the automobile industry? George Selden is an interesting character and had things gone a little differently, had he, he made a few different moves, we might be talking about him today as the inventor of the automobile rather than uh, Carl Benz or, or someone else like that. Uh, Selden was an attorney, you're right, and, and he had an attorney who had a lot of experience in patent law in particular, which is an important part of the story. Yes, he sees that uh, internal combustion engine and we have to give him credit. 
he had the vision to realize that this could really change things in terms of overland transportation. So he puts together a patent application in 1879 to cover the construction of a self-propelled vehicle powered by an internal combustion engine. But very crucially, he does not get that patent. This was at a time when, it, had he been awarded the patent, it would have been in effect for something like 17 years, right? So 17 years, he would have gotten all the, the royalties, the money, whatever it might be associated with the patent protection. But he also realized, Selden, in 1879, there were really no legitimate market prospects for an automobile patent, right? Nobody was up and building one. So what he did was make minor modifications to this application every couple of years, knowing that by making those applications, or those updates, I should say, he could prevent the actual award of the patent until such time as it was, was worth something, frankly. So finally, he uh, gets the patent awarded in 1895, which not coincidentally is when people are starting to really build cars now seriously, and there seems to be some potential. And uh, Pat, uh, Selden actually rather quickly sells his patent for something like $10,000 to a, a firm that is going to enforce it, the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers. And they collect something like a 1.25% royalty on the price of every car that is sold. And theoretically, if you're going to build cars in the United States, you have to be licensed by this ALAM, which collects the patents. Some of them go to the organization. Some of those Patent royalties do still go to, to George Selden. Uh, and that's another story for Henry Ford. He applies to be a member of ALAM, but they charge him with not really building the car himself. They say he hasn't proven himself as a manufacturer in 1903, which creates kind of a catch-22 for Henry Ford, right? In order to prove that he's building cars, he's essentially got to violate the Selden patent, but he can't be protected under the Selden patent unless he's building viable cars. So he's in kind of a tough spot. So he does, I think, what is really his only choice, and that is one, to build the cars anyway, and then mm. two, to uh, take a LAM and the whole idea of the Selden patent to court. And there's a eight-year legal battle that Ford finally wins or is finally decided in his favor in 1911, at which point the Selden patent is abolished and the ALAM is taken apart and, and basically anyone can build a car under a, a patent sharing program. So that's really part of the, the origins of Henry Ford's kind of larger than life folk hero status. This is right at the time the, auto, the Model T is arriving, but it's before the assembly line. So uh, the public sees him and they kind of picture him as, as the little guy fighting the big machine, right? a champion of the, the small businessman and the small entrepreneur. So fascinating story. Yes. You know, Henry Ford, you know, he's from Michigan, Ransom Olds. He's from Michigan. Why Michigan? Why does Michigan, you know, essentially really Detroit, why does it become the epicenter of the automobile industry? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I have to say that is, is maybe the most frequently asked question that, that I get when people come to visit the Henry Ford. Why Detroit? Why did it become the center of the auto industry? Certainly there were other cities that had a lot of automobile manufacturers, Chicago, Indianapolis, Cleveland, even St. Louis. But uh, Detroit offered a, a few things. One, uh, it had uh, a lot of kind of enterprising uh, financiers, right? People who were willing to invest money into these uh, automobile companies, which a lot of people saw as a pretty risky investment, understandably so in, in the early 1900s. Uh, we also had experience with precision manufacturing, building railroad cars here, building stoves for a long time in Detroit, and building 
horse-drawn vehicles as well. We had a great geographic location. We're right on the Great Lakes, kind of between the uh, coal fields, if you will, of West Virginia and Pennsylvania, and the uh, iron ore and, and later taconite deposits up in, in Minnesota and Wisconsin. So that's convenient. But at the end of the day, I think the real secret, the real reason why Detroit became the center of the American auto industry is, as you said, because of people. We just happen to be where a lot of these early automotive entrepreneurs were born. Henry Ford, born in Dearborn. We talked about Billy Durant up in Flint. You had people like Ransom Oles over in Lansing, not too far from Detroit. Uh, you had Henry Leland, who would go on to found Cadillac in Lincoln. He was in the Detroit area. Um, you had uh, others, uh, the Dodge brothers, you mentioned at one point too. They were in this part of the country as well. So you get enough people uh, in any one place working toward any one industry, they, they become a magnet, drawing others to it. So before you know it, Detroit just kind of naturally grows into the focal point of America's car business. What would you say is, you know, some of the overall impacts that the automobile has on American society? Yeah, as we said at the, the top of the discussion, there's really no part of American life that hasn't been affected by the car, but a couple I always like to point to. One, how we eat, right? Our, our diet, our foodways have been changed by the car. Uh, 110 years ago, people didn't go out for meals. If they did, it was a really special occasion, a birthday, some kind of anniversary. And if they did, they went to a formal restaurant downtown or maybe to a restaurant in a hotel or something, right? Now, uh, there, we don't think twice about going out to eat, right? Maybe it's to a casual sit-down restaurant. A lot of times it's through a drive-through, right? And the whole idea of fast food is kind of interdependent with the automobile, not just in the fact that restaurants are often built along major roadways, but the fact that you know, we have drive-through windows. You don't even have to get out of your car. The food is designed to be eaten as you're driving, right? The hamburgers work pretty well with one hand on the steering wheel. And the food in fast food is built on something like an assembly line, not unlike the automobile. And that's not to take anything away from the quality of fast food, but you know, you go to a McDonald's or Burger King, you can see them assembling your hamburger in different stations. So there really is a close relationship between those industries. Uh, the other one I would talk about is, is travel, in particular hotel lodging and how much that has changed because of the automobile. Again, 110 years ago, hotels were built around the idea of railroad travel. So you'd have big hotels located right in the heart of downtown, often not far from the railroad station. Uh, the automobile comes on the scene, changes all of that. And in fact, it's inconvenient for people to drive downtown to stay at a hotel. So initially people camp in their, sometimes right in their cars, right? They'll sleep in the car and maybe wow. they'll sit up next to the car. So cities have to build campgrounds out on the edge of town. And then later hotels and tourist cabins are built out on the edge of cities where you drive up your car to your own little cottage, you stay there. Then the idea of the motel comes on the scene where now you, each room kind of opens to the outside, often right out to your parking spot, right inside of the door. So uh, that's a, a real shift in, in, um, in the way we travel and in, in how we stay overnight based on the automobile. And that's something that would have to shift again when the airplane arrived too. Now we have to build hotels, not sure. just by the interstate, but out by the airports as well. You know, it's so interesting. I mean, even you talked earlier about, you know, cars not needing to drive so fast because the, there were no roads like we have them today. They're dirt roads and just paving roads, building roads, eventually building interstate highways. And then, you know, changing how where people can live people don't have to live in the cities they can live in eventually you know the suburbs that are created it's unbelievable how much this one particular invention kind of changes the game 
Yeah, it, it really is. It, it forces us to kind of reorder our lives. And, and we like to say there are really two stories of the automobile in American life. And one is how the car has changed over the past 120, 130 years to meet our needs, right? The car getting faster, getting more comfortable, getting larger, but also how have we changed to meet the car's needs? Because we have changed where we live, how we work, how we shop, how we, we travel, fun, work, play, all of it affected by the car. You know, the name of the museum is called the Henry Ford Museum of American Innovation. And, and certainly Henry Ford has made a number of really incredible contributions, but he's also not without his detractors and people who say that, you know, you can't have a discussion about him and not call out his anti-Semitism. You mm -hmm. know, he has a newspaper, right? He buys that newspaper and that newspaper prints all of these really very anti-Semitic articles and those newspapers are in all of those four dealerships all around the country. Yeah, there's no question about it. it absolutely disgusting, uh, Henry Ford's anti-Semitism. And you're right, he published, he actually purchased uh, a local newspaper here in Dearborn called the Dearborn Independent and published uh, a series of uh, anti-Semitic, uh, really quite quite disgusting editorials over a period of years. And you're right, he forced Ford dealers to, to carry them. And uh, you know, a lot of Ford dealers were rightfully so, revolted by this. A lot of them said, no, we don't want to carry this anymore. You're hurting the brand. You're hurting the sales with this, uh, this nonsense. Henry Ford's own son and wife pushed back against it. They both ended up resigning from the board of this newspaper because they were disgusted with these editorials. But uh, eventually, Henry relented and, and stopped publishing these things. It's an open question whether he realized just how wrong he was in doing these things. And, uh, you know, there's no excuse for it. Then there's no excuse for it today. All we can do is try and figure out where this came from. And I, part of it, frankly, I think came from Henry Ford's ignorance. You know, there's, there's no question he was uh, a talented engineer and designer and obviously a business person, but uh, he grew up in, in a rural society where sadly anti-Semitism was not all that uncommon. So certainly he absorbed some of that growing up. Uh, that doesn't mean he shouldn't have kept that. He certainly shouldn't have kept those views uh, into adulthood, but he, he never got the sort of rounded education that a lot of folks did. His son Edsel, for example, was much more cultured and much more exposed to different different things and open to different ideas. And that's something, you know, Henry Ford dropped out of school at age of 15. So he never really had exposure to that. And there's no question that is a, a lasting stain on his legacy and, and uh, rightfully should be. We should not forget the bad with the good. And it's, uh, it's a sad chapter, no question about it. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, anti-Semitism wasn't something that was just in Europe and, and the Nazis, which I think the Nazis actually gave Henry Ford like an award or something. But, you know, anti-Semitism was very much so alive here in the United States. When, you, you know, you approach, you know, the World War II era, you, you have Nazi rallies in Madison Square Garden with, you know, images of, uh, you know, George Washington and swastikas. So, I mean, it was very much present in American society. And you're absolutely right the way you talk about it. You have to talk about the full story and, and in, embrace the bad so that you can talk about the whole story, the whole person. But for your museum, I mean, you have some really incredible pieces in your museum. I mean, I'm looking at your background right now and it's a shame that this is just an audio podcast because I mean, it's unbelievable. Can you talk about some of the pieces that the museum has? And it's not solely cars, you said, you know, planes, trains, the whole spiel. 
Uh, yes, it's, it's not just cars, it's not just transportation. You're right, we're a museum of American innovation. So we talk about technological innovation. We also talk about social change and social innovation. So you know, some of the, the highlights uh, sort of off the top of my head, we have the 1896 quadricycle, Henry Ford's original car that, that he built. We have that on display. Uh, we also have uh, one of the earliest series produced automobiles. Uh, it's a 1893 Dorier vehicle, which is, there were 13 of them built, which doesn't sound like mass production, but it's the first example of a series produced car, right? 13 more or less identical copies of each one. So we've got that. Uh, outside of automobiles, we have some early airplanes, about 25 early aircraft, including a DC-3, which hangs from the ceiling in the museum, really one of the wow. first viable passenger aircraft. We have, in the way of social innovation, we have the actual bus on which Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in 1955, a protest that really launched the modern civil rights movement. And that is always fascinating to watch visitors interact with that. And you can actually climb inside the bus, sit down in that seat, hear a presentation where Rosa Parks describes what happened in her own voice. And, and there are people that are you know, moved to tears in that space. So that's always one of my, my favorite places to spend time. But yes, any number of, of things in the museum and any number of artifacts. How many cars does the museum have? Do you know? Uh, we do. I say roughly 300. <laughs> I say roughly because we have some that are, are merely chassis without the bodies and all, all the other parts, some that are kind of in various stages of assembly. We have a couple that are show pieces where the car was literally cut in half for use at uh, car shows and showrooms, that kind of thing. So, you know, whether or not you want to count those as a real car, quote unquote, but 300 is a good working number. You know, there's so much innovation happening with the car. With, especially with the move you know, for electric cars, if you look at what Tesla is doing, you know, where do you see the car industry going? Yeah, that's the, the million dollar question. And I've been at, at the Henry Ford for 10 years now, and I feel like even in just 10 years, I've seen that shift a little bit. Uh, five, six years ago, it seemed like everybody was going to be in self-driving cars by the early 2020s, right? And, and yeah. we wouldn't have to drive anymore. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not quite there. Certainly there are... Uh, enhanced driving capabilities now where you know you can kind of take your hands off the wheel and the car does most of the work cruising down the freeway but you've still got to be there engaged ready to take over at any moment so i think we're still quite a ways away from completely self-driving cars that don't require any human intervention and yes the move toward electric cars has really changed quite a bit in the time since i've, I've been there too it was a lot of focus on on hybrids when i started in the early 2010s we seem to have moved away from that and gone straight to electrics and, and now we see big automakers, people like GM and, and Stellantis and others committing to be entirely electric in, in a surprisingly short amount of time. So that's been a, a real shift. And uh, you know, I, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't point out that in a way we're kind of going going back in time because electric cars were absolutely a thing at the turn of the 20th century. Yes. You could buy steam, gas, or electric. And, uh, you know, people decided that the gasoline powered cars just gave them greater range. The same things people worry about today, right? They're going to run out of juice in the middle of nowhere and not be able to get where they're going. So, uh, you know, electric cars more or less died uh, by about 1920. And now we see them coming back. But you have to wonder, what if we had taken a different path in 1920, stuck with electric cars? How good, how efficient, how how fast would they be today? And you know, we'll never know. But uh, we're, we're making up for lost time pretty quickly. It's so interesting. I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today. This was such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much, Matt. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Jean-Anne and Matt. And we will continue our discussion on the automobile in our next podcast. 
Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parler. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.